to episode 124 of Manage the Wild. I'm Nick Madsen. If you go on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you will see quite a few videos and pictures of the challenging winter that wildlife has faced. A side that's not often talked about and in some communities, and it is in mine because we're just a farming and ranching community where I live at, is the fact that a lot of farmers and ranchers bear the brunt when winter is harsh. The livestock come into their fields, come into their crops, come into their haystacks, and create a lot of damage. And as you go on, you read the comments, a lot of people are trying to figure out ways that the state can help refund, I guess, or help pay for some of the damages that these wildlife have done. And each state has their own requirements, their own rules and regulations that they have to follow when fixing or helping with big game depredation. Now, I'm not familiar with very many states and how they do it. I know some states don't pay any money. Some states pay a bit. Some will come in and and try and help mitigate. But all of those requirements that they have are set forth in their rules and procedures. They have to set forth a standard so the public can know basically whether the state is following everything they said they were going to do or if they're not. So the state of Utah has one. It's in uh, administrative rules, and it's an administrative rule R657-44, big game depredation. Big game depredation in 657-44 will lay out all the procedures, the standards, the requirements, and the limits for assessing big game depredation. So whenever a representative from the Utah Division of Wildlife comes out, meets with a farmer and rancher about big game depredation, they have the procedures they have to follow. There's a standard, so they know they can't deviate too much from it, but there are some variations. And then they have to meet the requirements. And then if there's anything that would stop them from continuing the process to mitigate. And then it also lays out those mitigation procedures for big game depredation. In R657-44, it will talk about, as you go through it, it'll talk about damaged cultivated crops, fences, and irrigation by big game animals. People will come in and they will say, hey, I've got rock chucks that are causing damage to my pivots. Those don't qualify. They're not big game. So if big game animals are damaging cultivated crops on cleared and planted land or fences or irrigation on private land, the landowner shall immediately, upon discovery of big game damage, request that the division take action by notifying the division of rep- division representative. And this is the challenge that I see uh, when talking with people is, let's say the damage happened in December and it's now going into May. And they're letting the Division of Wildlife know, hey, we've got damage. It didn't we can't just take your word for it. They have to be notified quickly so they can come in and see that it's actually happening to verify. It's part of their rules and administration. They're not calling the farmer or rancher a liar saying it didn't happen, but in their rules and procedures, they have to be notified immediately 
so they can assess how much was actually done. Because if the damage was done in December or January and you're just showing them pictures, it's not, they're not going to be able to help you out. They're going to absolutely tell you they can't do anything for you. And it doesn't matter how you fight it. If you don't notify the Division of Wildlife, they're not going to help you. Now, you can do it two ways. You can call them, they say orally, but you can call them and so they can start an investigation or you can write it in. And by rule 657-44, they must respond within 72 hours. That is a requirement. And if they don't, there are penalties. So when they're coming in after you've said, I have all this damage going on, they need to come in and they need to consider the big game population management objective. So if your elk population is over objective, they're a lot more lenient in what they can do versus if they're under. One of the challenges with uh, mule deer is mule deer will come into uh, fields and cause depredation on fields and in certain cases, there can be a lot of deer causing a lot of damage, but if they're under objective, then they're limited in the amount of things they can do. Also, the if you only have five or six elk or deer coming into your property, uh, they're also limited based upon just the amount of damage that five or six animals can do. In Then they've got to put together... Uh, a mitigation plan and they'll look at a few things whether they remove the big game or the animals that are causing the problems um, again if you're under objective it's going to be harder for the division to say yeah we're gonna we're gonna wipe out a lot of these animals some of the times they may even just say hey we'll pay you for the loss the division has to come up with a mitigation plan that incorporates the following measures they need to send a division employee or representative out within 72 hours, and they need to look at and document the actual damage. Then they need to think about hazing or herding. Can they do a capture and relocate? Uh, is temporary fencing uh, an option? Or are removals going to be the only thing? So when I first started, uh, we were doing a lot of hazing and temporary fence. And then the damage on some of these areas got so large that we ended up doing quite a few removals. And then we would only do removals up until the value of the wildlife equaled the value of the damage. And these were all antlerless uh, removals that we did. Very rarely were we taking out antlered animals. Then they've got to look at, is there is there some other ways that we can not put as much pressure on us, but put more pressure on the landowner? Uh, and so they will issue mitigation permits. And this is uh, for, they're usually antlerless, and they can give out these mitigation tags to help so to their buddies or whatever, and they can help reduce the amount of damage. In certain areas that I've been in, these mitigation vouchers uh, 
almost made it seem like it was a CWMU. They would claim a lot of damage, but then they would bring in mitigation vouchers. They would sell access, not the voucher, because they can't do that, but they would sell access to the ground, and then they could use the voucher. Some of these um, voucher or access so they could hunt these vouchers were $1,000 a piece. So they're getting damage is some of the is the challenge but yet they're making a lot more off of access because of and so it just creates uh, some situations there that are a little difficult to work around and so it's definitely up to the representative for the division to come in and assess whether there's actual damage or not so they can receive some mitigation vouchers and as well as permits in certain situations Landowners uh, may be allowed to just kill them themselves. Uh, I've been involved in a few situations where this happened, where the landowner, they were so far away that it was so expensive for the Division of Wildlife to justify the amount of people to go out to this. They would let the landowner kill uh, the animals. So it was, in our case, it was elk that I was involved in, as well as deer. I've been in both. And one of them was the place was so far away that it was just really difficult to get enough help from the division that they were allowed to do it. And then the other was an orchard. And uh, they, they we call it a 72-hour notice, but they just say, hey, you're not doing enough. I'm getting so much damage. They send in a 72-hour notice and then... Basically, they would be approved or not approved. And then when I was involved in those, uh, they would gut the animals, they would shoot the animals, gut them, and then we would come and pick them up, and they would all be donated. And again, it was only antlerless animals. They were not antlered. They weren't allowed to shoot. And there's been a few cases where their 72-hour notice was denied. Again, it was whether some some ranchers were claiming uh, more damage than was actually going on. Others just had a vendetta out for the wildlife and there actually wasn't that much damage. Or they were, again, under objective. So you have to, when you go in to determine whether the 72-hour notices are approved, they work with the depredation specialist as well as the biologist to make sure that the value would equal the reaction. So if there was 1,100 deer coming into a 40-acre pivot, then you're going to want to do some removals because you got some problems there. Then the, the last... Uh, I guess this is the part that I enjoyed the least was compensation for damage. And depending on the amount of damage uh, that was going on, the Utah Division of Wildlife would um, compensate those farmers and ranchers for lost irrigation equipment, broken fencing, and then damage their crops. And so we would have to calculate how many animals did we estimate because we'd be out there counting at nights. We'd have to estimate the amount of animals. And then uh, we times that however much, how many animals, whether it was deer or elk. And then we would pay whether it was $10 a day per animal or 10 pounds per day per animal or $8. We would figure all those costs out and then we would 
figure out what it costs for them to their time spent fencing. Because elk, it's unbelievable. I've been in areas where a herd of elk just would rip out 200 yards of fencing as they just ran through, blew through like a train. It was nuts. And there were some situations, and I don't even, ima- I wouldn't even want to imagine what it would cost to fix it where bison are involved. The areas that I, I was at didn't have bison at all. And then uh, we would pay the landowners, or we would fill out all the requests, submit it to Salt Lake, and then they would pay the landowners. The reason why I didn't like this is I felt like I was always overpaying, and the ranchers felt like I was always underpaying, and they were sometimes these meetings were really contentious. Or they wouldn't call us immediately when they first started noticing the damage, and so we couldn't base it on when they did we had to base it on when we first arrived and so if they were getting damage in november but they didn't call us until january our assessment for damage wouldn't start until january and people would just get so mad and so there's just a lot of problems and challenges and then the other issue is um, antlered animals once in a lifetime species those different types of things. Those were always more difficult to deal with. And so I'm, I'm, I was involved in very few where we actually removed antlered animals. And a couple of the times that we did, it was just because it was bachelor groups of bulls that were coming in and they were causing, uh, what they do is on these pivots, the sprinklers hang down and they would come through and they would rub their velvet off on the sprinklers and they would be snapping these sprinklers off of these uh, pivots. And they're expensive, especially if you have to have a technician come out and help you fix those things in some of these areas that they would have to drive really far. It gets really expensive to pay for those things. And then there's been a few instances, but I've never seen one put together we've talked to jim and he actually jim christensen uh, when we talked to him he actually got a few of these together but they're called dedication dep- dedication depredation hunter pools and it's some instances landowners if they don't know anybody who would come onto their property to hunt they can do a depredation hunter pool and you can sign up through this on the utah division of wildlife but you can sign up and what they'll do is if uh, they're experiencing depredation they will send out uh, a bunch of tags to this hunter pool and they will get called and they will start at the top one, two, three. And when your number gets called, you will be told what days you can go in and hunt and they will use that hunter pool until the problem is solved or until they reached, like, let's say they wanted to remove 15 animals. And so they will go through and every couple of weeks bring more hunters in and until they get their 15 animals so there are regulations and there is a process that needs to be followed it's really challenging it's not going to solve everybody's issue people are going to be unhappy with the way it turns out i was never involved in a situation where everybody was happy how it went down some of the more challenging ones are those commercial crops raspberries orchards those are are even more 
difficult and the costs are even greater because you're bringing some people are bringing in trees from Japan or Asia and it's just really expensive and then their their shoots are getting eaten and so there's just a lot of problems when it comes to depredation but if you know anybody who experiences depredation each year and they're just complaining about not being helped make sure that they listen to this episode Make sure that they're calling their local biologist or their local field office for the Division of Wildlife, whatever state they're in, and they can start working through that process to fix their issues because there's plenty out there. All right, guys, if you like today's episode, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Go on Facebook, like it, follow me on Instagram. I appreciate all the work that you guys do. Grateful for everything. If you have any comments or suggestions, ways to improve, let me know. Stay wild. Have a great day.